Welcome everyone to Watch Challenge. On each episode, we challenge ourselves to find and watch a film of a particular type, and then we report back the results to each other and you find listeners as well. My name is Aaron Spears. And I'm Mike Wendt. In this episode's challenge, just because uh, Sundance is right around the corner, it is Sundance alums. It is. It is. That is a huge festival, Mike. Uh, a huge, huge, huge history to that. I, I yeah. think there's an argument that it's even spawned um, a very, fairly fascinating film movement, which I'll mention in, in a moment as well. <laughs> but let's start, you know, the origin story. Do you remember when you first, as a uh, burgeoning, burgeoning? As a beginning film geek, I forget what that word is, actually. <laughs> As a budding film geek, what was your first interaction with Sundance or your first, you know, thoughts of Sundance or films of Sundance? Yeah, I I used to read Entertainment Weekly a lot when back when it was printed. Uh, <laughs> is that um, printed anymore? No. I haven't looked uh, for it in a while, I guess. The last but... two years, it's it's gone strictly oh. online. Okay. So, uh, RIP, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's saving trees. I, you know, I guess you could look at it like that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I do remember, uh, reading quite a bit about clerks, uh, you know, the Kevin Smith's movie. Oh, sure. I think that's what kind of got some of the exposure in my brain. But one of the things that really sticks out to me was, uh, ABC's 2020 did a, or it could be, it could have been Dateline, but they followed three different filmmakers who had movies premiered at Sundance in, I want to say 1998 or 1997. Okay. One of them was Vin Diesel and he, he had like a, Whoa. yeah, he had a, a, you know, an auteur writer, director, star film that played Whoa. at Sundance. It got, you know, pretty bad uh, or it didn't get super high marks but then the next year or months later he was in saving private ryan so his career didn't really hurt but um but it's a really i you know i recently found it on on youtube and rewatched the episode um i i can't remember the other filmmakers but it it was uh it was really interesting and and that's what kind of got the fascination of sundance in my head i would say interesting Wow, I've never I've, that just blew my mind. I've never thought of Vin Diesel as a director. <laughs> I haven't really followed his career that closely. And screenwriter, and <laughs> but yeah, definitely not as an auteur. Definitely not as like someone heading off to Sundance with their. <laughs> in my perception is like their scrappy little film and whatever. But wow, yeah, I thought it was weird enough when he did that um, Sidney Lumet film. Oh yes, find uh, find me guilty. Yes, or something. Yeah, yeah. but I'm gonna have to look up that uh, that movie now. I'm curious. Yeah, I'll try to find the the YouTube clip for that. We can include it in the show notes. Um, oh, sure, sure. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating watch. My exposure was kind of similarly. It started off with magazines. I think probably Premiere Magazine. Uh, that was always a gift subscription my parents got me once they you know saw I was a film geek and in training or film geek, <laughs> heading down the path of, of film geekiness. And then back when there were also bookstores around, like several of them around, I remember going and getting either like filmmaker or movie maker magazine and they would definitely, cause they were always covering more like independent films. I think it was filmmaker magazine probably that they would always have like a Sundance issue each year, like all through like the late nineties. And that was, I was like, Oh my God, because at that point too, you know, there is some early internet, maybe some YouTube like directory groups to look up shit. But like, I really, yeah. it wasn't in my house at that time either. It was very like, magazine based and then basically I would make my list to f- try to find that at the local video store you know if not 
check out Blockbuster, I guess, if I had to, yeah. uh, you know, in like a year or more when that movie would finally be there. Or it would really be like, oh, I got to head up to, you know, Cedar Lee in Cleveland. Or once I was in college, I was in Dayton. I would go to the neon movies to watch, uh, you know, the, the, the art house stuff. But it quickly in that era became like the indie darlings of the mid nineties. And it was oh, like yeah. viewed as like this launching pad. So like, I'm going to film school. I wasn't doing production, but I was still, I was, I was around those, those folks. It was like, you know, if we can get a short and get it into Sundance, that was like, you made it, you know, right. you're, that was your way you could break into the industry, so to speak, or get noticed if you were just like a big enough personality and you were there with a movie, like people would check you out. Or like, you know, if you could, you could sell it just right. You know, that was a way to get in or maybe, some other festivals that then work your way into Sundance somehow. But I think to me, cause I started college in 95 going to film school down in Dayton. That was sort of that era post sex lies and videotape where there was all these yeah. people, these filmmakers I just adored, you know, that ended up going through either Sundance as a festival or the Sundance writers Institute or the Sundance labs of, of various uh, disciplines there that it seemed like there was this movement and we were watching it in real time where, you know, the, the outsiders were getting into Hollywood via, you know, having success at Sundance. And then they're kind of, you know, taking over the industry like that late 90s boom where, you know, you've got like the Paul Thomas Anderson's and all these different filmmakers that were like Sundance darlings, you know, that, that made good. Let I me mean, even go back to like Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino and Soderbergh and all of them. Yeah, um, no, that I was like. They- there's a film movement going on. Oh my God. It came out of just like this festival from my perspective as a kid. Oh, it, it, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the time that you were in college, which, you know, you're a few years older than me, but that I almost like slightly envious. Cause like, you know, that was, I think the looking at a lot of the, the more recent things at Sundance and it, it's nothing to disparage against it. No, but no. That was like the sweet spot. That was like when so many great films mm-hmm. that, made a cultural impact i think on you know the, a lot of the future um, yeah. you know filmmakers now um i don't you know i guess this could almost be a broader topic for another time <laughs> talking about the quality of of the films now um but uh but yeah back then i mean that was just you know every time you saw that laurel sundance you know you knew it was going to be something special or right. something like you know unique well, then I've also read, actually, just a quick shout out. There's a book called The Sundance Kids, and I'm not remembering the author off the top of my head, but it talks about like that generation that kind of like went through Sundance, then like took over Hollywood. And it's, uh, you know, that that's from like an insider's entertainment reporter perspective. But there's also like filmmakers and people that worked at Sundance who I've taught, or even producers. I think Christine Vachon has talked about it before. She does mm-hmm. killer films about how, yeah, but then it just became a marketplace because once it was a thing, now it's like you've got, I remember the the punchy bag for this was always the Spitfire Grill, if you remember that movie, where like it was oh, yeah. bought at Sundance for like 13 or $15 million. Then we're like, it's going to be the next indie darling and it's going to be the next sleeper hit. And like you can't necessarily make a sleeper hit. Like just because you, you got it there and there's like the hype machine at the festival doesn't always translate to like it's going to be the next big thing. Sometimes the next big thing is a surprise because no one saw it coming. That's what makes it fun and, and energetic and interesting. Yeah, so the marketplace. Me- I've seen. I've heard the argument. That the marketplace aspect of it really ruined Sundance once it was a thing. It well, it makes me think. This is a more recent one, but uh, say like the film Hamlet Two. Uh, oh yeah. That okay. Yeah, yeah. That one made all this big news because it was acquired for 
you know, double digit millions. And then it came out and it was like a poof in the, uh, <laughs> because I, I think partially because they put it super wide. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of empty. Cause like, you know, I know you worked at Cedar Lee. I was working at a Regal. Mm-hmm. We even got it like the opening weekend and, you know, it was probably me and like a handful of other uh, yeah. college students who went to go see it. Um, but that was, that was the same story at Cedar when it came out. So like, why is this going so wide? I didn't know if people are going to even come watch it here. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it's like, there's obviously a lot of great that came from, from Sundance being this uh, innovator of, of a film festival. But then I think that's the other side where, you know, you, you have these high expectations for things that, you know, sometimes don't always reach those exactly uh, highs, <laughs> which which sucks because like both of us is just being like unabashed film fans. Like that's sort of unfair to the film itself too. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you're like, so now because the entertainment reporting gets going the way it goes, like you said, you remember, you know, like Hamlet two or like the Spitfire Grill, like I mentioned. That's not even a knock on the quality of us. I thought Hamlet two was hilarious. It would have been better if I saw it with a whole bunch of people rather than like five of us, you know, spread out amongst a three hundred seat theater. But like that's not the film's fault that the hype machine just kind of went a little too nuts, you know, in the the PR department. Um, yeah, I still know. rock uh, rock me sexy Jesus on my my iPod. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll I'll admit, <laughs> still funny just when you say that. I'm like, oh, I'm picturing it. Yep, that's uh, that's that's some good stuff. But um, so yeah, for for this one, it, we didn't even have to really worry about with this topic based at Google search results, trying to dig in a little deeper because holy shit, there's so many movies. All it had to do for this criteria was like play at Sundance. Uh, so did you like scale that back for yourself or how did you go about your picks? Yeah. So I, I, I started uh, when doing research for this episode, I, I, I did kind of stick with the theme and I think this listeners of the show might pick up on the theme. I, I tend to like a certain genre of film, but okay. uh, <laughs> I wanted to pick something in the early days Okay. Something in the in that nineties uh craze. And then the the movie that I ultimately picked was just something that it was kind of almost like a spin the wheel where it lands. Oh, this sounds interesting. Let's watch it. <laughs> interesting. Okay. So, uh but uh but but I know like uh in looking at the the festival itself, and I think you might have a little more notes than me, but I noticed that the the festival used to do a lot of retrospectives. Yeah. Uh, look at the, some of the things like they used to do, looks like a lot of like Charlie Chaplin and all that stuff, but they, in the nineties, they, they moved away from that uh, in, you know, coming what it is where it's like more of a premiere right. festival, not so much retrospectives where I think that's more like a New York film festival can still s- seems to, uh, play mm-hmm. a lot of retrospectives as well because of like of restorations and all that stuff right right but it doesn't seem to be as something that happens now right right as uh, i think it's probably just so packed now like there's so many categories um yeah so i i tend to gravitate from Sundance. obviously like you see the big the big audience award winners or you know that sort of stuff i tend to gravitate in recent years towards the um it's like the generation next or the up next kind of award. So it's like really re- um, rewarding and celebrating people are really pushing the boundaries of film. So I, I, I dig sure. that category a lot, but also like they have such a great domestic meaning us and then also international or world uh, documentaries. Yeah. And 
as I was prepping this one, I was like, man, I actually haven't watched a documentary for a few weeks, which is kind of odd <laughs> for me. Usually I, I have a pretty healthy dose of documentaries mixed in. So yeah, you may notice a theme <laughs> in, in there with my picks, but yeah, I, I hadn't really, and I, I'd read like the Sundance kid and I, there's even one called down and dirty pictures that Peter Biskin wrote after he mm-hmm. wrote easy riders, raging bulls. It's all about Sundance um, kind of in that heyday marketplace boom. But that's a little bit more like dish and rumors and stuff. I mean, stuff happened, but I was like, it's kind of more like uh, salacious reporting kind of style of writing rather than like great documentation of like what happened. But yeah, I, w- I was a little shocked that I was like, okay, it started in 78, the festival, but it was the Utah slash US film festival. And really it sounded like it was more of a way to like get more filmmakers to come to Utah to film, you know, yeah. kind of like you're, you know, you're with the greater, greater Cleveland film commission. Like that is no small feat and that's very important to do, but doing it through a festival, I was like, Ooh, what a cool idea to do that. You're going to showcase stuff, but yeah, a lot of retrospective things. And then they immediately, um, pretty immediately the next year, they launched the Sundance Institute. I had no idea that started in 79, like one year in, Yeah, which is a great way to promote filmmakers coming in too. Yeah. I would assume that was like nineties or something. Yeah, I I did too. Yeah. Once it was like really rolling. Um, and then in 81, it switched to this one just kind of made me snicker a little bit. Uh, the U S film and video festival, (laughs) which really, um, you know, putting a flag in that, like, we're also going to do video. And I was like, Ooh, yeah. are, are we? <laughs> but you know, at a point in time, like that was like, this is going to be a lasting format. Now it'll be in people's homes. And this is a new format for filmmakers. It's a new tool for filmmakers to explore, et cetera. <laughs> and then in 84, we get what we now know as, you know, the Sundance film yes. festival named after his obviously Redford's iconic, you know, Butch Cassidy Sundance role. And we were off and running. So 84 becomes Sundance. And by 89, you've got like the sex lies and videotape generation, you know, yeah, and you're like it's like where it kind of really launched in the stratosphere. Absolutely. Actually, you know, real quick, before we go into those, yeah. have you ever been there in person? I haven't. Have you? Same. Uh, I, you know, in um, I got to work on the movie Take Shelter that shot here. Mm-hmm. And it, it was opening at Sundance and I had started in the process of buying tickets and, you know, getting flights and everything. Yeah. And my car literally like a week or so before like the engine died. Uh, so it was either, you know, fix my car, get a new car, yeah. or go to some, go to some. And now there's probably, you know, down the line, if they make the Fableman's type movie about me or something, uh, <laughs> it, that might've been like something that I would change and be like, Oh, I'm definitely going to Sundance. And I probably should have, but, but no, I, you know, I had to stick with the car. So didn't, didn't go. Uh, but, yet. uh, didn't go yet. Yes. Yeah. I, I do plan to go, but I, I have liked in the, the last couple of years that when things went to digital because of pandemic, it's like, have been able to like stream some of the movies mm-hmm. while they're premiering. So it's almost like being there and you don't have to deal with all the, the, the cars and all the, the lodging issues, which I always hear is a, a yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yes, I, I do. That is a bucket list thing. I would like to Absolutely. go. Absolutely. I've been doing the same thing though. I like me was two years in a row. I was able to watch several movies because they were also streaming. Like you said, I could just buy a virtual ticket. And yeah. even a couple of folks I know who have been there either as like film critics or just as film fans were saying like, Oh my God, you did it the way you should then, because you'd be lucky if you can get in two, hopefully just as a pain attendee, you know, we're not yeah. getting VI treatment you know, if we get, well, if you end up going with the film at some point, Mike, hopefully you do. But, you know, if you're just going as a film fan, like it's, 
spread out all around town. Who knows what the weather's going to be? Like you said, lodging. And I was able to watch like four movies in a day from the privacy of my own home. And I don't think that's going to be replicable uh, when I, when I finally get there. Yeah. I, from, uh, I've tried to buy a couple for this year. Uh, they've had some major ticketing issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have one that's still in this, like in, uh, you know, in the queue and I keep trying to hit purchase and it keeps telling me it's, it's not working. So oh. I, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like too many people have caught on now, but, uh, but you know, we'll see if I can, I can get that a bit. Sure. 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 So uh, not knowing your theme yet, Mike, uh, sure. I'll see if I can guess it as you go through your films here. What, uh, what's an honorable mention you want to throw out before we jump in here? Sure. So uh, the first honorable mention that I want to discuss is Smooth Talk. It's from 1985, so very early yeah. in, the, uh, in this, the actual Sundance realm. This, this is a coming-of-age film that stars Laura Dern. Uh, she's like this young kind of rebellious teenager and uh she she meets this uh treat williams who uh plays like a, a perfect sleaze ball uh <laughs> and she starts like this kind of a slight you know forbidden relationship with him um it's uh it's really smart and uh and i think this was one of the first lead roles that laura dern had and you know it clearly showed she had a, a talent and uh, I know there's been a lot of talk lately of Nepo babies, and I, I know she has very famous parents. But, <laughs> um, but I but I think sometimes having famous parents can only take you so far. You know, she has that raw. Talent. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, in, in this movie, um, you know, I don't know why uh, Joyce uh, Chopra wasn't perhaps a bigger name in in narrative films. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't really. You know, she made some, but uh, after that, but uh, she's you know kind of went in the doc route and TV route, but uh, oh, interesting, very yeah. uh, very interesting uh, film, and it recently came on Criterion, so that's how I. Oh, so. all right. Well, that's always a good good stamp of approval when Criterion's willing to put your your film out. Oh, Wait, yeah. like so, it's streaming on Criterion, or oh, they no, put it out sorry. Yeah, they released it uh, Blu-ray. And, oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah, uh, I think they did a. There was some kind of retrospective screening that they did of it at the New York Film Festival. Oh, cool. Last cool, cool. year, I think, in time with that. How about you? My my first one doesn't quite go back that far, but I, I picked it. I want to make it as an honorable mention because it was one of the first... Uh, it was one of the first ones I do remember, like I couldn't find right away, not right away, but I couldn't find when I knew it was out on VHS and I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And then that this is also the time I learned that at my local, uh, my local library branch, you could do a request for materials. Uh, <laughs> so I requested they get a VHS copy of the celluloid closet from oh, 1995, okay. uh, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman's um, co-director directing partners. Um, they directed a bunch over the years another Sundance uh, favorite of theirs, uh, which I believe is a short, The Times of Harvey Milk, which would go on to inspire eventually um, Milk with, with yeah. Sean Penn. Celluloid Closet is, so it's personal favorite, just doc of mine, because it was also early on. It's an early on documentary experience for me as well, but also it's a film geek heaven kind of mm-hmm. to watch because it deals with uh, LGBTQ representation, although it wasn't called that necessarily at the time in Hollywood throughout cinema history. But at the same time, since it's based on Vito Russo's book, he 
I can't remember when the book came out. I want to say it was eighties or so. So like it really only goes up so far, but if you go to the Wikipedia entry for the celluloid closet, some editor has gone through and listed all of the films mentioned in the movie. And you scroll through that going like, Oh my God, how do they cover all of this? And like, you know, 90 minutes, a hundred minutes or whatever it is, but they really do. And they have all these really thoughtful interviews with um, different folks that are actors or writers. I think the marquee names are like, it's narrated by Lily Tomlin. I think Tom Hanks gives an interview, but it's, it's folks that were like saying like, Oh, I saw this as a kid. I wasn't out of the closet yet. Um, you know, I wasn't even out to my friends yet, but like, yeah. I, you know, I finally, I saw myself in this like one little side character, like, Oh wait, cause it had to be so coded uh, during that quote unquote golden era of Hollywood. And the film kind of dives into that with, you know, some of it's fairly tragic. Some of it's a little melancholy. Some of it's just joyful. And some of it's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe how we used to write characters in these right, <laughs> in these, right. these movies. I mean, I'm all for like it was a product of its time sort of thing. But some of you are just like, no, that's just offensive, period. Like, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> believe you're doing this. But fascinating documentary, especially if you're I assume if you're listening to a watch challenge, you know, film podcast, you're you've got at least some film geek tendencies it'll definitely expand your watch list for like cinema history uh, as well. That's great. Do you have another album yeah. mention, Mike or? Yes. Um, so my next one uh, going into that, you know, that heyday, I would say sure. is uh, Todd Salons or Salons. Uh, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> yeah. uh, Welcome to the Dow house, uh, which is uh, one of those films that, you know, like I said, as I was kind of, Growing up, starting to look for movies outside of the norm, uh, reading entertainment yeah. movie or whatever, you know, read a ton about this movie. And this was another, uh, this was a movie that I too uh, either got at the library, if I remember correctly, or we used to have, there was a video store like three blocks from my house called Carino's Video. It's still one of the last ones in existence around here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, got to rent it and, uh, you know, I think at the time I didn't really fully grasp what I was watching, uh, because, you know, I saw like, you know, you see the cover and everything and, it, and it's very like colorful and looks like a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's weird and it goes into <laughs> very weird places and Dawn or, or, uh, Heather Mazzaro uh, plays Dawn Wiener dog is what she's known as in the yeah, movie. Unfortunately. So, <laughs> yeah. She, she has some very, you know, people treat her like shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this movie, um, but um, you know, very recently I I revisited it again, and uh, boy, it, it's it's a really good film, and um, I like the fact that a few years ago he brought he brought her back uh, in this movie in another film that I I wish I I don't have the tab up, but um, you know, he's just. Uh, his uh, let's see the the movie is called Wiener Doll from from two thousand. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see that one. Which I should have known that. Uh, <laughs> right away. No, I I just appreciate his his kind of filmmaking, uh, just highlighting just offbeat and odd characters, and a lot of times, yeah, people are not treated well. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's a there's always something that you can glean from it. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, it, it looks like if he hasn't made a movie since 2016, I would hope he has another one in him. But uh, yeah, very unique guy. Very. What's what's the polite phrase for there? We, I would because we would play. I played some of several of his movies when I was working at the Art House Theater over the years, including Wiener Dog and yeah. like you know palindromes and some of those. And I would forget it was like oh it, like it's um 
He's a provocateur, so make yeah. sure you've yeah. read up on this film and what you are about to walk into, because uh, the, the, <laughs> I'm going to spoil anything at all with this one if you haven't seen Wiener Dog. Infuriating ending, in my opinion, but it'll get you talking. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and definitely had some people talking and yelling in the lobby after that one <laughs> was done, because when you just start asking questions politely as the manager, you're just engaging the patrons. Sometimes they're like, and you like this? I was like, no, I was just talking to you about it. I was just talking. <laughs> I did pick one other one. Actually, my most recent one is from 2005. My my second and last honorable mention is one I was able to. I did see on the big screen, but also revisited recently because I just. I it was such a memorable theatrical experience. I was like, oh, I completely forgot about that. It meant a lot to me when I saw it, and I haven't seen it since then. And it is kind of hard to recreate if you're watching it at home because it's a movie that I think demands your unfocused attention, which you're going to get in a theater. Yeah, and it's hard to do that at home and like your phone's right there or a sandwich up in the kitchen is right there waiting for you or something. Uh, that is a 2005 film, Into Great Silence. Mm. Um, it is from a German director, Philip Groening. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's also just a fascinating production story where he wanted to make a documentary about at the, I wrote it down here, hold on, the Grand Chartreuse, which is the head monastery of the Carthusian Order uh, in France, from France. And so he asks the, the monks at this monastery, the monks that run it, Hey, I really would love to figure out a way to do a documentary about this monastery and the, the life of the monks here. And so he proposed the idea in 1984, the monks were like, yeah, we want to think about this. Let me think about this for a minute. 16 years later, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to let you, we're going to let you do that. I assume there's probably some stipulations, obviously, you know, his approach or whatever basically his approach was he moved in with them for like six eight months just him so he's wow. producer cinematographer sound everything he's the only one there with them and he also used no artificial light he wanted to capture them like that life that place that time and he then also was his own editor so like it's seriously wow. it's just it's a one-man show of this but it's also 162 minutes <sighs> Right. Exhale. Long, long <laughs> exhale. I would say it's contemplative and really allows you to like visit the space. Obviously, you're not going to sit there with these monks who spend a lifetime there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it really gives you a sense of like the serenity of the like at one point, there's just this great shot of the sun coming in through a window and you can just see like the particles in the air and you're just like, you just hold this for a couple of minutes. Just and like yeah. it's, it's just being there, and it, it really it was such a unique um, shot shot on on digital uh, digital Sony camera. But then he uh, there were thirty five millimeter prints made, and it was very early on, like I think the first year or so when I was at the Art House Theater that it came out. And I was like, I built it. I built the print, put it on the platters. And I was like, I am watching this movie, and just sat there. It's not like you're wrapped, you know, by it or anything like that. Yeah. But it was like it's such an experience. You just you know, you give it 40 minutes or so and you're like, oh, okay, just get comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds great. I, it's, it's, I've never heard of that at all. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it played for like a week, maybe because like, sure. you know, good reviews, but everyone sees the running time. Like it's what there's like, there's five lines of dialogue. Like <laughs> monks aren't known for being chatty guys. Like they may be right. philosophical and what they do say, you know, here or there that you over here is like, oh, all right. But it's more just like giving you such an intense sense of like place and like just I don't know. It was just a very serene kind of feel to me. So that's amazing. Yeah. But 
All right, honorable mentions out of the way. Um, I have some thoughts on what your theme might be, Mike, but let's see uh, what's sure. your uh, what's your pick. Yes, so my pick is a documentary, and right. it is called All American High. I'd like to welcome you all back from a summer to a new year. Visiting us from Finland, Rikamari Rahala. First minute I came, I didn't know anybody. I was just looking around, and I felt I was lost. You got the punkers, the meddlers, and the preppies. The punkers, they want to have nothing to do with society. They want to have something to say against it. The preppies are working for it, and the meddlers are just out to party. To be a homecoming queen is just a, an honor. I'm getting bigger, bigger. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Someone doesn't answer, it means they drown. In getting ready for a party, there's a lot to do. Stand by the guy in the corner. I supply the cups and the beer. We will go shopping for a marriage partner in this class. By the power invested in me by Florence High School, I now pronounce you husband and wife. It was a good ceremony. High school prepares more for a social life than for a work life. Definitely, I went the coming of age route. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this one is interesting. Uh, so it's by a director named Kiva Rosenfeld. And basically, he followed the senior class of 1984 in uh, Torrance High School in Los Angeles. So which is uh, not it's like probably a less rich area of Los Angeles, essentially. But uh, the way how he phrased this movie, I thought was kind of brilliant, was he probably could have went uh, a route where he picks like, you know, the most popular people or something. Oh, sure. What he did was he focused on making this uh, exchange student from Finland being the narrator of the story. So, you know, he, he covers all of the bases of, of the school year, but it's basically seen through her eyes. So she is narrating and okay. it is at times very funny. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a part where she says, uh, she she hears everybody saying the words fucking shit. And okay. so she, she says, she's like, I didn't think shit could fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which made me, made me laugh. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I think the way how, you know, it's very tight. It, it's only an hour. But I cheated just slightly uh, in that I watched the what's called American High Revisited. It's basically the first hour of the film is the first, the original release. Uh, but then like the last 25 minutes or so is you get an update on the, all the people who are featured in it. You know, so this era, of course, 84, you know, you have a lot more like punk rocker type of people, but it seems like all those punk rock type of people, spoiler alert, all became cops or military people. <laughs> That's not the direction I thought you were going. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like, it's really kind of crazy. Yeah. But uh, I thought this was, uh, I think this is the kind of doc that I sometimes love to see from Sundance. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a few years later, uh, or a few years from, 
um, from when this was made, there was another film that came out at Sundance called American Teen, which oh, kind of yeah, it it tried to like do the same thing, but they also tried to like phrase it like like the Breakfast Club, you yeah, know, yeah, the Rebel. You had the the popular girl and stuff, but I think this is so much better expertly done, and yeah. uh, I don't know it it, it was per, um, shown on PBS, so it uh, okay. I think. That's why they did this revisited because the rights became an issue. So it's like never, I, I don't think it was ever really released as a standalone, but uh, if you watch this, the revisited, it's like you're essentially seeing the, the, the film as it was okay. shown at Sundance. Yeah. I remember the, when American teen came out again, just we're at the art house and they made a huge push for like, it's like the breakfast club, but a documentary. And it, I don't remember caring for it very much because it felt like this was a documentary made in the era of reality television and it was trying to get that kind of teen hope hope crowd out to see a documentary or maybe they just knew they could sell some television rights to it this one sounds way more interesting to me because it's before reality tv was really a thing so this is just a documentarian going in and looking at a high school is it like sit down yeah. interviews too, or how does the the structure Not, work? For there, there's occasional sit down interviews, but they're done in a way that's kind of it's not like you know the perfect three point lighting system or something. Right. You know, it's like they're kind of more spur of the moment. I I'm just impressed of how he was able to encompass a whole year in 59 minutes. Yeah, you know, which it's like it flies by. And it's entertaining, and it's like mm-hmm. a time capsule because then you you know you're seeing all the different. Uh, hairstyles you're seeing yeah. uh, the teachers talk about certain things that are you know like they talk about the cold war a little bit um you know you, you're hearing music that was popular from the era you know he got the rights to like you know talking heads and go-go's and stuff like that okay um which probably was easier back then than now yeah yeah but, uh, Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah but but yeah uh highly entertaining uh but yeah i would say if you stumble across american teen i would probably you know, it's interesting to look at, but I, you know, that, that one is not nearly as focused as this. Or like the antidote would be like, I know a uh, famous documentarian, Frederick Wiseman did one just called high school early on in his career, which yeah. I'm not looking up right now, but I'm going to assume as usual, Frederick Wiseman, like seven hours long kind of thing of that. <laughs> where now I'm like, yeah, how did he, this guy did it. This guy, you know, uh, Keva did it in, in 59 minutes or whatever. So yeah, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Good editing work, I would imagine. But no, yeah. that sounds really that sounds really fascinating. Especially, I love those that time capsule kind of vibe. Where, like it just it clearly just caught that moment when it was happening. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, pretty big recommend from me. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. How about you? Similar theme, not necessarily coming of age by any means, but similar theme in that it is uh, it's capturing a moment, but it's kind of capturing a moment in a different ways. So, my pick for Sundance Olums is one called "For All Mankind." Mm, yeah. It is a documentary. Uh, came out in 1989, directed by Al Reiner. Having gotten away from the spacecraft, I was able to really realize what this place was like that we had landed in. I had tried to anticipate what it would be like for many years, but it was obvious that there was no way one could have anticipated what it would be like to stand in the valley of uh, Taurus Littrell place deeper than the Grand Canyon and equally as spectacular. See this brilliantly illuminated landscape with a brighter sun than anyone had ever stood in before, with a blacker than black sky, 
And then to top the whole scene off in this blacker than black sky was a beautiful, brilliantly illuminated blue marble that we call the Earth. The path of evolution is now in space as much as on Earth. It's a fascinating, and I, I don't know if it's a subgenre or not, but I've definitely seen a few documentaries like this where there's no uh, talking heads in the documentary. It's entirely archival NASA footage, most of which the public had never seen before. Hmm. So the film essentially through all of this footage tells you the story of Apollo 11 and it's just the footage. And then they did record some interviews with folks that worked on it, that were in the, you know, that were like, you know, on the mission, but also in mission control. And so you get a little like waxing philosophic voiceovers to it, but it's all footage basically just showing you only with NASA's footage Apollo 11, getting ready, blast off to the moon, back home. But what they did was they actually used all this footage NASA had from Apollo 7 through 17 in order to create kind of then a fictionalized-ish version of Apollo 11. But ostensibly, it's all about that Apollo 11. But there is footage of like, you know, there's footage in there of folks in the moon that aren't Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin. And you hear them talking to each other like, oh, hey, John, we're going to do blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wait, what? But ostensibly, like the package deal is like this is the archival footage piecing together every moment of the Apollo 11 mission. So it's all just like this amazing footage. And I guess at, at the time in the 80s, when they they started looking into this, there was all this footage the public had never seen. So Al Reiner and his editor, Susan Corda, went through six million feet of film. Wow. And 80 hours of audio interviews with all kinds of NASA folks and put this whole thing together, which was just uh, spectacular. So like, I don't know, it, 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 it hit me in a number of ways where like, I'm kind of like, I'm not a big science guy, but I'm definitely like a NASA geek when they do, you know, yeah. the moon came out, I was watching that. Like it, it was all like, Oh my God, I got to hit play on this. I can't believe I've never even heard of this one before. Yeah. So a couple of moments I wrote down, Oh, and Brian Eno does the soundtrack to it, the score. Uh, so, and it's not like an overbearing score for the most part. Honestly, I kind of just didn't even notice it. It's just like a great, bed for like the mood i think to kind yeah. of string everything together it's kind of fascinating there's one point where you see them doing a spacewalk on the way to the moon and you can see the you know he's t- i don't know who it is but they're like you know they're tethered and they're out they're filming some stuff and then they just casually as they're talking about doing the spacewalks like yeah we were traveling twenty five thousand miles an hour at that time like whoop, 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 whoop. what because like <laughs> it's so serene and like you know it's you know weightlessness is kicking in and all this stuff there's one part I can't remember. I wrote down Buzz Aldrin saying it, but I'm not 100 percent sure it was him. But one of the comments they have was as they're as they're blasting off, one of the astronauts is reflecting on sitting on like just that much, like you're sitting on a you know that much fuel and the explosion that is propelling you out into space, and says, "I have no idea how this part works, but I know how my part of this mission works." Yeah, and they were kind of just saying how like yeah, you're putting your hands into like the the whole of the crew, including everyone, you know, down on the ground to the person who's sitting in the seat, you just happen to be the lucky person that's in that seat that you don't know how the whole ship operates or how every button, when you push that, it does this, but they know what their part of that is. And it's just like this faith and this trust in the whole mechanism of NASA working together to get, to get this mission accomplished. Yeah. And I guess in my head, I'm always like, yeah, if you're on the, if you're an astronaut, like, yeah, you know how the rockets work, you know how that, like, that's not, necessarily true <laughs> and so like it's such a collective team effort you're sort of like wowed by it um at a certain point but i just thought the way that he phrased that we're like well i know how my part works and i'm good on that part it's like man i don't know if i 
psychologically, I would not be able to handle that. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm also the confined space and there's a whole other reasons why I wouldn't be, <laughs> would never be going up into space, but it's also kind of awesome. Cause once they're on the moon, they just turn into children at points too. Like they're taking the Rover out for a spin or they're like dropping a, a feather and a hammer to prove that like, they're going to fall at the same rate. And they're just like hopping around being goofball. They just start singing. And you're like, man, that's so awesome that like such intense, you know, science and math geeks that are like astronauts. As soon as you get to the moon, they're just like, Wee! <laughs> it's, it, it was so much fun. Oh my God. And at one point, I think it was before they get to the moon, they have, um, it's, you know, the, um, it's the cassette tape era. So they have like a little cassette player and the one dude brought the fucking 2001 theme, that Strauss theme. Oh yes. And like they play it and they're like, this is so weird. But I was like, Oh my God, as a film geek, this is amazing. Like a film gave them the language to express the awe that they have when they're like looking back and seeing the earth. And I was just like, Oh my God, that's so, (laughs) so, so cool. So yeah, I went on, it won, it won the grand jury prize documentary. It won the audience award documentary. And since I currently, uh, in early 2023 here, I'm still working on wrapping up my 2022 watch list that I need to finish up. And I thought that Richard Linklater movie is just sitting there from 2022, Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. I am watching this immediately because it's such a, I'm like, oh my God, this is the best time to watch this movie. So yes, I, I have this, uh, my wife sometimes yells at me because I have this, she says like, I'm like uh, a snob towards animated films sometimes. So like that one's been on the queue and i've been meaning to watch it and i will get to it but there's so many live action movies that are out there you know yeah no i felt the same way and i you know i think we're both you know probably equal link ladder fans but for some reason once it's animated i'm like eh, i'll get to it <laughs> even though like i just need to so our official watch challenge picks for Sundance alums are All American High from 1987 and For All Mankind from 1989. Ooh, pretty close together, too. I didn't realize that until just now. Yeah. Mike, what have we got up in front of us for our next challenge? So Oscar nominations are just right around the corner. So we're going to go with Oscar snubs. So, you know, things that we felt that should have been nominated, but were not or things i guess things that we thought should have won but but did not oh interesting yeah so they're really the only cat so it's like yeah if they never got the nomination or if they just didn't win but should have covered them both yeah that that's what i would say that sounds good that sounds good now we'll probably also have some thoughts at the top of the show on the current year but i still have some gaping holes in my 2022 watch list so i'm not going to be picking anything from 2022, 2022 necessarily, but I, I think we'll definitely be expressing some thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe that's too new because you got to let it like settle a little bit, you know, because maybe sometimes, you know, the re- uh, what they call it recency bias or something. Oh, I, we will definitely be uh, yeah talking about that, well, I think, as well. <laughs> maybe, yeah, we should give it a, a few years to breathe. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So if you'd like to send us any of your picks for Oscar snubs, that one that's just really been bugging you all these years, you know, please send them our way. Or if you just like to submit any other uh, topic or genre you'd like covered on a future show, watchchallengepodcast at gmail.com or just head over to the links that are in the show notes. And real quick, I just, you know, forgot to mention earlier in the episode, but uh, some of the friends of the show, Robert Banks had a Sundance uh, short called Outlet. And Laura Paglin had a short film called No Umbrella 
election day in the city. So, you know, if you can find those, they're sometimes hard to find, but, uh, you know, shorts, whatever. But uh, I, I would highly suggest looking those out because they're, they're both Cleveland people who had absolutely. So until next time, rate the and review the show and whatever podcast app you're using, and we'll see you on the next channel.